0: Good morning. Welcome to Central, where we seek transformation through renewal in Christ. Christ, who is committed to changing our lives, our community, and world, and therefore so are we. My name is Charles Godwin. I am the pastor of Congregational Care here at Central. We're continuing our sermon series, Jesus is Greater, a study of Hebrews, And today we will look at Hebrews chapter 11, a chapter on which we spent all last summer. A chapter that is known as the Hall of Faith, containing snapshots of the faith of several Old Testament men and women. And we're going to unpack the truth that true, life-giving, saving faith in Christ is a greater faith than any other faiths upon which we may lean. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read our text and study this great faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray for soft hearts. Help us not to harden our hearts, and help us to see Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen. Our text is Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to begin in verse 35. And read through 11.2, and then skip to chapter 11, verse 39, and read through 12, verse 3. And that begins on page 1007 of your pew Bible, if you're using that. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And then down to verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Many of you have heard me share, either from the pulpit or in new members class, uh, my testimony. I grew up in a Christian home in Mississippi. I was baptized. We went to church most weeks. My parents taught us the Bible. They prayed with and for us. I was president of my youth group. I was an Eagle Scout and a good citizen. I was friendly and thoughtful. I could even articulate the gospel. In fact, my mom had this picture that stayed on the wall of her breakfast area until we sold that house that I had drawn in fourth grade. It was this Easter egg. But in the middle, there was a place to write what Easter means. And I wrote, "'Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world.'" And if anyone asked me if I was a Christian on into college, I would say, yes, my family is Christian. We go to church and we pray. I was brought up in a good way and I'm more successful at that than not. I might sin every once in a while, but my goodness is pretty good compared to others. That sounds pretty good. What's missing? Faith? No. No, I had faith. I had faith in my baptism, I had faith in my heritage, I had faith in my upbringing, I had faith in my mostly good works. We all have faith in someone or something. So what was missing? What was wrong? It's that I thought my faith in those things and myself would save me. I thought I had true, life-giving, saving faith. But the message of Hebrews is that there is a true, life-giving, saving faith. A greater faith. And it only comes in Christ. Not in ourselves or other things. The author of our text writes to, Hebrew, to the Hebrews... And to us, and he earnestly wants his readers to believe and keep on believing that Jesus is greater. That Jesus and Jesus alone is all we need to be right with God. Hebrews is a pastoral letter. It's written by the author to his flock, to his people whom he led and loved. The Hebrews to whom this letter is written, they are struggling. They're struggling with some significant trials, with persecution and temptations. And they are being tempted to look away from Jesus and his grace and to put their faith in other things, seen things, seen people of this world, as resources to live their lives of faith. And in their unbelief, there is a danger of hardening their hearts. And we're not all that different from the Hebrews. We too, we get caught up in the swirl and noise of life. We may not experience great persecution, but in the midst of our sin and brokenness and in the midst of the sin and brokenness around us, when trials and temptations come, we too forget Jesus. We try to figure out life on our own. We design our own self-protective formulas for living. We place primary trust and faith in people and places and things to help us through our lives. But what happens when those things fail us? And they will. And they do. Our confidence and hope easily wavers. We lose sight of Jesus Christ. We take our eyes off Him who is God Himself and lived, died, was buried, and raised from the dead to restore broken people and places and things to life. Brian Chapel writes, if we cannot lift our eyes from an earthly perspective to Jesus, then we will so focus on our weaknesses and our stumbles and our sin and brokenness that the race to please God will be miserable. It's to people like the Hebrews and to us that the author writes this letter. And he reminds us that nothing and no one is greater than Jesus. And in faith in him alone is a saving faith. A greater faith than any other thing or person in which we tend to place our faith. One pastor said this, Faith is the channel by which we receive the benefits of Christ's saving work. It is the cup into which God pours his saving grace. Friends, because true, life-giving, saving faith in Christ is a greater faith than any other faiths you may lean upon, consider and keep on considering Jesus and that he alone is all you need to be right with God. We're going to take to look at three distinctives of this true, life-giving, saving faith in Christ. This greater faith by which the writer says the righteous live. And the first one is that it is a faith that is received. It is a faith that is received. As we studied the Hall of Faith last summer, and as I looked back through it this week and looked at some of the stories of these Old Testament men and women, I was struck with the active faith of these men and women, which we're going to talk about in a moment but I also was struck with this passive language of a faith and promises that are received. Paul bolsters this idea of a faith received as a gift from God in his letter to the Ephesians, a familiar verse to many of you, where he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. True, life-giving, saving faith is a gift of God. It's not something that we can just conjure up like, you got to have faith. It doesn't work like that. It's more than just a positive outlook. It's more than hopeful or wishful thinking. It's not blind. It's not just a feeling. It's not a hunch. It's not sentimentality. One pastor said, true faith is neither brainless nor a sentimental feeling, but it is a solid conviction resting on God's promises. Faith is that instrument by which we receive the gift of salvation. It receives grace. It never obligates God to do something. It is a work of the Holy Spirit where God changes the disposition of our heart. And as the catechism says, he convinces us of our sin and misery. He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renews our wills. And thus he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ. There's that gift of faith. To embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel as our only hope. Now a quick aside here. Because faith is not something you earn, but it's given to you, the problems of your life are not because you don't have enough faith. But there's people that teach that but it's just not true. I have a friend who says, I can't make you have faith and you can't make you have faith. It is received as a gift of God. Hymn writer Jean Ingelow beautifully captures this sentiment in her words. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true, no, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walk and sank not on the storm vexed sea. Twas not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou were long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. That's my testimony. It was not until sometime in college when I went to a Bible study and the pastor was teaching on 1 John. And he read these words that I'm going to read to you now. And I was confronted with my non-saving, life-robbing rather than life-giving faith. The Apostle John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And friends, when that pastor read that that day, that's when the Holy Spirit said, that's you, that's you. He goes on to say, if we walk in light, As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. I probably wouldn't have gone so far to say that I never sinned. But I thought I was pretty good. And that my goodness was good enough. But he says no darkness at all. So what do I do with my darkness? He goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then he writes this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If anyone does sin, and you and I do, we apart from Christ walk in darkness and sin. We lie and do not practice truth. We sin in various and sundry ways, but if we sin, and note there's no qualification of sin here, no types, no frequency, we have an advocate with our Holy Father, Jesus the Son, who came and lived the life we cannot, and he died the death we deserve, and he rose from the grave conquering sin and death once for all to restore sinful, broken people like you and me, sinful, broken places and things back to life. You see, our ancestry can be good. We can have Christian parents. We can be baptized. We can be pretty good people. That's important. I don't want to minimize the importance of good works, and we're going to talk about them in just a moment. But our faith in any of those things will not save us. True, life-giving, saving faith in Christ, this greater faith by which the righteous live, is a faith that is received. Now the second distinctive of this true, life-giving, saving faith in Christ, this greater faith by which the righteous live, is that it is a faith based on another's faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness. Last week when Pastor Cole was preaching on chapter 10 about the greater assurance we have in Christ, he read this in verse 23 of chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful he is faithful we are not as a gift from God true life-giving saving faith in Christ is not something we earn or can earn as I said earlier it is a solid conviction resting on God's promises resting on his Jesus's faithfulness not ours he and his faithfulness are the object of our faith One pastor said this, faith is like our windshield. We look through it at what's important. It helps us see the one, Jesus, on whom we are to depend. Faith helps us see Jesus on whom we are to depend. Jesus perfectly believed and obeyed God for us and for our redemption. In fact, our pastor who writes this letter says he is the founder and perfecter of Of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author here reminds us that true, life giving, saving faith in Christ, this greater faith on which the righteous live, is a faith based on Jesus' faithfulness. Our faith begins and it carries on founder and perfecter of our faith. It begins and carries on in Christ. He doesn't just call us and give us this faith and start us on this journey and then say, go on. He's committed to bring it to completion when we in this world are made new. Paul reiterates this in his letter to the Ephesians from which I read earlier. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of your works, so that no one can boast. One scholar wrote this, he said, At the heart of good news is that we can't earn rightness with God by what we do or don't do, but by what Jesus does. So how do we get the benefit of what Jesus does? Faith. At its core, faith is not what I do. It's receiving and trusting. I do things out of the faith that I have. It's not about you doing the right thing or believing the right thing. When we believe that, we're focusing on the action of faith rather than the object. And when we focus primarily on action and not first and not object first, we tend to get off track. True, life-giving, saving faith. This greater faith by which the righteous live is a faith based on another's faithfulness, Jesus. Now while these passive elements of life-giving, true saving faith in Christ are significant to keep us on track in living our lives of faith, if we focus on them exclusively, then we'll also get off track. Because a final important distinctive in our text today of this true, life-giving, saving faith in Christ, this greater faith by which the righteous live is that it is a faith that works. It necessarily has an active component as well. True, life-giving, saving faith in Christ is active. It's living. We see living, active faith in these snapshots of faith in chapter 11 elsewhere in the scriptures again back to Paul's letter by grace you've been saved through faith it's not of your own doing it's the gift of God not as a result of your works so that no one can boast for we are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and the apostle James writes faith by itself if it does not have works is dead Your faith in Christ alone that saves you necessarily is a living faith. It's active. It should show itself in good works. Now, does your faith always do that? I would dare say that it doesn't. But does it show itself at all? We're challenged to examine our faith and our works. To ask ourselves, Does my profession of faith in Christ show itself in good works? Not perfectly. That's not what the scriptures are talking about. But does it show itself in good works? If not, then is it real saving faith in Christ? Do I have saving faith in Christ? Am I what I profess to be? The people who see you most often who know you the best, would they know you are a Christian by the way you speak, act, or treat them? As we think this, keep this in mind. The author's not trying to make us fearful by presenting these snapshots of a living, active faith, but he urgently and desperately wants his readers to have saving faith in Christ, which is, by the work of the Holy Spirit, a living, active faith. He knows that living, active, obedient faith in Christ, while a fight, that's the picture of the Scriptures, it's a fight to believe, ultimately brings peace and hope and joy. I read this week that someone with this non-saving faith, quote, may accept the biblical diagnosis of the human condition. They may understand, I did, how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection remedy their estrangement from God. I had a knowledge of it, but it wasn't in my heart. They may go to church from time to time. They may like to read and talk about spiritual things. They may know the central teachings of Christian faith. They may be pleasant folks. They may seem to live decent lives, though they may indulge a vice or two. When conversation turns to Jesus or what happens after death, they sound like believers. They may adhere to orthodox evangelical theology. Yet, listen to this, there is nothing distinctively Christian about their behavior. They may be decent neighbors, they may perform a little community service, but there is no, and that's the operative word here, it's not some, there is no real self-sacrifice no costly obedience, no good deed that goes against their grain, nothing that challenges their well-designed life. Unlike saving faith in Christ, this is a faith apart from good works. And that, again, like I said, is not too dissimilar from my testimony when I alluded to John's words where he writes, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, We lie and do not practice the truth. This is strong, passionate language written out of love to wake us up, to point us to what one of my friends says is the beautiful relationship with Christ, the living, active faith that loves much because it knows his love. It is interesting that both the writer to the Hebrews and James write about Abraham's and Rahab's active faith. Now, in this section of James, which I haven't read except for that one verse, people sometimes get hung up on his using the word justified in relation to works because the Bible teaches that we are not saved or justified by our works. But James uses this word "justify" in the sense that good works prove saving faith. They show it. It's sort of like asking the question of an expense report. What justifies that expense? What proves it? Both Abraham and Rahab's faiths were shown by self sacrificing, costly, challenging obedience and works. A pastor said that Abraham's obedience exposed that he was a friend of God, it didn't earn him more favor. And the same goes with the risky works of Rahab to save the spies. It exposed her faith in God. Pastor Dan Doriani, former pastor of this church, writes this, In God's court, believers are justified the moment they believe. When they trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, their sin is laid on Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to them. Yet, works are also justify in this secondary sense. They vindicate God's declaration that we're right with Him. They prove we are alive in Christ. We're becoming, as we do good works, what we're declared to be, righteous. Now, as we contemplate that true, life-giving, saving faith in Christ is active, it's living, it's really challenging for us. For on any given day, if we look At a snapshot one day, it can really, we can be like, whoa, am I a believer? I heard someone say, though, that it's meant to be because the stakes are high. This is our salvation we're talking about. It's serious business for us to contemplate. Notice, we never see the word perfect or even always in relationship to the good works of these brothers and sisters in chapter 11. On any given day, you may not obey, but what's the overall pattern your life of faith is it living and active with good works saving faith is living and active it does good works it tries to obey God's commands not perfectly only Jesus has done that but it struggles against sin And to do right, it pushes back against the darkness we see and feel, the brokenness we see and feel. It redeems, it brings about redemption to broken people and places and things because it has been redeemed by Jesus. So we examine our hearts and lives today. And we're challenged to ask ourselves, is my faith showing itself? Is it living, active, Is it saving faith? I once had a pastor who said doubt and guilt are not going to make you a better Christian. What the author wants for us is to have true faith in Christ. Faith that is received as a gift. Faith that is based upon Jesus' faithfulness. And a faith that works. It's living and active. Because that is the kind of faith that we see in our passage is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Because true life-giving, saving faith in Christ is a greater faith than any other faiths you may lean upon, our author challenges us to consider and the language of this verb is to keep on considering Jesus and that He alone is all you need to be right with God. This word consider, it's a stronger word than it may seem on the surface. When translated, it means attention and continuous observation and regard. It is an act of the will that we in Christ can do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, not perfectly, but we can and must consider and keep on considering Jesus as we live our lives of faith. Why? The author of our text answers, So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in living your life of faith until he comes again. When you and I consider and keep on considering Jesus, we are by faith. This is what's amazing about the work of the Holy Spirit. We are by faith assured in hope and convicted of things and promises not yet seen. John Owen writes, A constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. You may be here today and think, I don't think I have this true life-giving, saving faith in Christ that is active. Friends, the solution for you is not to try to get better and then come to God. The solution for you is to ask God for faith in Christ, to ask Him to change you, To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible says that you will be saved. He'll give you faith. Ask him for it. You may be here today and you know you do have this life-giving, saving faith. But you may find it waning. Or maybe you are being nudged toward good works in some ways. And you've fallen short. The solution for you is to go to Jesus too. We don't just repent of our sins and brokenness and believe in Jesus to get saved. We continue to repent and believe in Jesus as we are being saved. As we are dying to sin and living to righteousness. As we are becoming what we are declared to be, righteous. Jesus is the one who did the good works of God perfectly for us who do not. Jesus is the one who did not fall short of God's demands of holiness for we who do. John Murray writes, God also causes the righteous state he declares. He's not left us alone. He's given us a helper, the promised Holy Spirit to help us do the good works he's prepared for us. He's given us a community here at Central to help us so that when we fall down, as we try to do good works, we have someone to help us up. So ask Jesus for faith and ask him to help you see and do the good works he's caused you to do. Shortly after the armistice of World War I, Preacher Donald J. Gray Barnhouse visited the battlefields of Belgium. And for miles west of the city, he found the roads lined with artillery and tanks and trucks and other materials of war that the enemy had abandoned in their flight. It was a spring day. The sun was shining, there wasn't a wind blowing, and he walked along and looked at the remains. He noticed leaves were falling from the trees arched along the road and he brushed one of the leaves that had fallen against his chest and he grabbed it and pressed it in his fingers and it disintegrated. He looked up and he saw other leaves falling from the trees. Now remember it was spring, spring not autumn and there wasn't enough wind to blow the leaves. These leaves had outlived the winds of autumn and the frost of winter Yet they were falling on that day seemingly without cause. And then Dr. Barnhouse realized why. The most potent force of all was causing them to fall. It was spring. The sap was beginning to run. Buds were pushing from within. From deep down below the earth, roots were sending life along the trunk and the branches and the twigs until it expelled every bit of deadness that remained from the previous year. It was, as a greatish Scottish preacher termed it, the expulsive power of a new affection. He goes on to say, this is what happens when our God writes his will on our hearts. The new life within purges the deadness from our lives. Our renewed hearts pump his blood through us. The life of Christ in us, the same life that said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, animates us. You may be saying to yourself this morning, I don't think I can ever live the Christian life. And you're right. But a new heart and the expulsive inner power of a new affection will make it possible. The sense that you cannot do it is precisely why you should come to Christ. In fact, it's the qualification. Friends, it is important for us to believe and to keep on believing, to consider Jesus and to keep on considering Jesus as we live our daily lives. Sometimes sin and brokenness, they seem overwhelming. It's not going to be this way forever. There is a truer truth to which the writer of Hebrews wants us to believe as we live our lives of faith until he comes again. Death, sin, brokenness no longer have the ultimate victory. They are being undone. All is being made new. The author writes to his readers, to us, and wants us to have true faith in Christ. A faith that is received as a gift. A faith that is based on another's faithfulness, Jesus's. And a faith that works. It's living and active. Because that is the kind of faith that is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Friends, this true, life-giving, say, saving faith in Christ by which we receive, the author says, our commendation is a greater faith than any other faith you may lean upon. So consider and keep on considering Jesus and that he alone is all you need to be right with God. In just a moment, we're going to sing these words and I'll conclude by reading them to you. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray these words that by your Holy Spirit, we will stand as your children. We will fix our eyes on Jesus, our soul's reward. Give us grace to finish the race well in Christ. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you that we get to come now and have a taste of the Lord's Supper. We get to see visibly and taste the work you have done for us in Christ. Grant us grace, we pray in his name. Amen.